seated. All right, title of this message, uh, for lack of a better title, I'm just not good at titles, it's called The House of Abinadab. Uh, we're going to read a little bit of scripture this morning. I tried to cut out a few verses, uh, but it, we have a little bit of a lengthy passage. I think it's always good to have a good context of what we're reading. And also, if we were to be honest, some of y'all probably have never read this before, and so if I can get as much scripture into you as I can, I want to do that. So the Bible says, Now the people of Beth Shemesh were weeping, were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they lifted their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. Then the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stood there. A large stone was there, and so they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the chest that was with it, in which were the articles of gold, and put them on the large stone. And then the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices the same day to the Lord. Then we'll jump down to verse 19. It says, Then he, and that meaning the Lord, struck the men of Beth Shemesh, because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,070 men of the people, and the people lamented, because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God, and to whom shall it go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirjath-Jerim, another translation says Kirjath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. And then the men of, of Kirjath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord, brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill, and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. And so it was that the ark remained at Kirjath-Jerim a long time, it was there 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Now, just kind of want to give you a little background of what's happening here. During this time, during this era, the Israelites had been under the leadership of uh, what the, the Bible calls judges, uh, we would say leaders, uh, for a period of, of several hundred years. And uh, toward the end of this time, uh, there was a guy by the name of Samuel, and Samuel was about to come on the scene, but before we get there, the person that actually ministered to Samuel and raised him up was a man by the name of Eli. Eli was a high priest over the Israelites, and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were the priests who were actually uh, uh, leading the worship at the, t at the uh, tabernacle that had been set up. Now, these two priests, Hophni and Phinehas, the Bible describes as being very wicked. <laughs> While they led worship at Shiloh, where the tabernacle and the ark of God, which represented the presence of God, was, uh, contrary to God's word, what you find them doing, if you go back and do a little bit of study, is basically they were stealing the offerings, and they were living sexually promiscuous lifestyles, while all at the same time being in charge of the worship of God. So, during this time... Uh, the Philistines were, the, were part of the enemies of Israel. Uh, they were oppressing the Israelites. And so the Israelites and the Philistines were at war. And uh, during one of those campaigns, having been on the losing end of a previous battle, they called for the Ark of God to be brought into the camp. The Ark of God represented the presence of God. We're losing. Uh, let's get God on our side is <laughs> really what's happening here. So when the Ark came, under the leadership of Hophni and Phinehas, and remember the Bible says they were wicked men, um, they were, there was a great shouting that came into the camp. Why? God is with us. God's going to help us. So the people of God, when the ark of God came into the camp, had a great shouting service. Uh, must have been a Pentecostal service because they were shouting there, right? 
Um, and so um, there was a great shout that took place. They were worshiping God in hopes of and in anticipation of having God fight for them so they could win their battles. The problem with all that was is they were not really serving God in the manner that he prescribed. They were kind of doing their own thing. They were kind of living a sinful lifestyle, but at the same time, you know, you can live a sinful lifestyle and can still come to church and shout. You can live a sinful lifestyle, still come to church and praise the Lord, lift your hands and do all that kind of stuff, but you look like you're worshiping the Lord on the outside, but the reality is uh, you're not an integritous person because, and I'm not pointing fingers and I'm not I'm saying the word integrity means who you are on the outside is not really who you are. Uh, who are you representing yourself to be on the outside is not really who you are on the inside. And God is looking for integrity. Integrity is same word. You get the word integer, and an integer is a whole number. God wants us to be the same on the outside and on the inside, right? So it's good to worship the Lord. It's good to lift your hands, but not being, um, you know, disingenuous about it. We all make mistakes. We're, no way are we saying that you're perfect. Uh, but when you come, you know, don't try to show yourself to be something that you're not. And that's what was happening here with Hophni and Phinehas. And basically all of Israel at this time, because they were under that kind of leadership, they were worshiping God in hopes of having God fight for them. But the problem was they weren't serving God in the manner that he prescribed. And how do we know how God prescribes to be served? It's found in this word. It's found in this Bible. And they had the word of God back then. They didn't have what we call the New Testament, but they had uh, the Pentateuch. They had the books that were being written at that particular time. And so God made explicit uh, uh, um, uh, commandments and, 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 and uh, principles of how they were supposed to worship him, but they weren't doing it. Consequently, they were looking God for, for God to intervene in their everyday life in the battle that they were facing, but God did not intervene even though outwardly they had all their ducks in a row, uh, obviously what, we're, what I'm describing to you. And if you go back and you read this, you'll find that this is the case, that they didn't do everything the way God wanted them to do, but they still wanted God to fight for them. So they had the priests, they had the ark, they had the worship, they had the warriors, but what they didn't have is God's blessing. Well, I thought if I just say, God, I love you, I have the blessings of God. Well, you know, that's good. That, you know, but the Bible says out of the heart the mouth speaks, but sometimes what we're speaking is not really what's in our heart. How do I know what's in our heart? Put you in a tight place. Let's catch you when all the, uh, when all the cameras are off and when, when all the lights are on around. And, you know, how do you talk when you're at home? How do you talk when you're uh, around people that aren't Christians? Do you take what you have here out there or do you uh, leave that? here whenever you go do you let your light shine out there or do you only turn your light on when you get in here are you hearing what I'm saying so they had the priest they had the ark they had the worship they had the warriors but they didn't have the God's blessing or God's presence with them because they were really not with him you see a lot of times we want God to follow us but we have a we're devoid in our understanding if that's the way we approach the Christian life. It's not about God being with us, it's about we being with Him. Do you remember when Joshua was about to, when Joshua crossed over, led the Israelites over the, the Jordan River, and the first city that they were facing was uh, the, the Jericho, right? 
And while they were about to go in, they were probably making plans, doing all that kind of stuff. The Bible says that uh, the uh, captain of the Lord of hosts showed up. And Joshua didn't know who he was. He goes out. He thought he was just another man. He realized later it was, it was uh, the pre-incarnate manifestation of the Lord. But he said, whose side are you on, ours or theirs? And he said, neither. I'm the captain of the Lord of hosts. The real question is not whose side am I on. The real question is whose side are you on? You see what I'm saying? We all want God to be on our side, but God leads, we follow. We have this false misunderstanding that we lead and God is with us and God follows us. No, God leads, we follow. And so if, if something's amiss, it's not on God's uh, side, it's all on, on our side. You remember the Israelites in the Old Testament, they had the cloud that covered uh, the tabernacle and whenever the cloud moved, what were they supposed to do? They got to stay under the cloud, Right? Wherever the cloud goes, that's where I got to be. I wanna, uh, that's how the Christian life is supposed to be lived. Where is God's presence? I need to stay under Him. I need to let Him lead, and I follow. Well, ultimately, the Israelites lost the battle, and the ark of God was captured by the Philistines. While, uh, while with the Philistines, where you're going to find this, really, I would encourage you to go back and read this because it's so good. God, being God, He could take care of Himself, Right? They thought they captured him, but they didn't realize that he had captured them, right? So anyway, he pretty much took care of himself to the extent that the Philistines decided it was too hazardous to have the presence of God in their midst. And so the Philistines, which is a type of the world, not wanting to change and not wanting to embrace God and get rid of their gods, they sent the representation of God back. We don't want him. Because we find that when he's with us, we're not changing. We're not changing our gods. We're not getting ready because we serve this God or whatever case may be. And so we're not going to change. So we need to get God out of here because as long as God's here, we're in trouble. Nobody likes a party that you're at when a Christian shows up. Because when a Christian shows up, you feel bad about everything you're doing. So what you try to do is you try to put out the light. I'm just telling you right that's what they're trying to do get the light out of here <laughs> it, it's not good for us and so they sent the ark of God back and that kind of brings us into our text and the first thing I want to look at here is where they sent it was to the city of Beth Shemesh first Samuel 6 14 through 15 the ark came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stood there a large stone was there and so they split the wood of the uh, cart offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord the Levites took down the ark of the Lord, and the chest was with it, in which were the articles of gold, put them on the large stone, and then the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices the same day to the Lord. Now, those of you all that know this passage knows that there's a lot there, how the Philistines sent the, the ark back, and all the things that you can glean out of that, but that's not what I'm really wanting to focus on today. I'm focusing on something else. So just kind of bear with me that I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail, and some of you are going, that's great. <laughs> Uh, well, I want to look at the city that the ark came into, is, is, and I want to look at what that represents to us. That city is called Beth Shemesh. Literally, it means the house of the sun. Uh, I would suggest it could also be understood as the house of light. What did Jesus call the people of God in the New Testament? Matthew 5, 14 through 16. And by the way, he wasn't talking to Christians. He was talking to the Israelites. And uh, we can apply that to ourselves because we're part of the people of God. But the bottom line is in Matthew 14 through 16, it says, You are the light of the world. 
A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So in this city, the city of light, the ark of God, the presence of God was recognized for what it was. The city also had a contingent of Levites. Now, who are the Levites? The Levites are the priests that serve uh, uh, the Lord, and they serve the tabernacle. And they, the Levites, received the ark, and because they're Levites, immediately what they wanted to do is they wanted to have a worship service. So they had a worship service because of the joyful return of the ark of God. Now, again, who are the Levites? Let me just... Uh, make sure that you get a good understanding of who they are. Numbers 8, 14. You shall set, separate from me the Levites, one of the tribes of, the, of the, the people of God of the nation of Israel. Separate from me the tribe of the Levites from among the children of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine. The Levites were set apart for God to serve God. Their principal roles in the temple, including singing of the psalms during the temple services, performing construction and maintenance for the temple, serving as guards, and performing other types of services. Levites also served as teachers and judges, maintaining cities of refuge in biblical times. Many of them became skilled in the word of God. One of them by the name of Ezra, a little bit later on in history, but the Bible says of Ezra, this Ezra, in Ezra 7 and 6, this Ezra came up from Babylon, and he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. So what you'll find if you trace his ancestry, he was a priest, he was a Levite, but not only was he a Levite, what the Bible says about him, which many of the Levites were, was skilled in the law of Moses. So he knew the Word of God. The Word of God is often referenced with the metaphor of light in the Bible. Psalms 119-105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalms 119 and 130, the entrance of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. So in this city of light, where the Levites who should have been knowledgeable in the Word of God, which is itself the light, there was a transgression against the light, against the Word of God, that caused many of the people in this city to perish. In their worship of God, they violated the Word of God, and the results of their worship was devastating. Okay, what did they do? Well, instead of treating the ark of God with reverence, the ark of God is supposed to be in the tabernacle of God, and it was supposed to be behind two chambers, the holy place and the most holy place. And there were certain prescribed ways of going into the ark. And whenever they were going to the presence of the ark, because the presence of God would hover over the ark, they had to sacrifice, they had to shed blood, they had to be pure, they had to anoint with oil. you know. And when the ark had to be moved, they would take down the tabernacle. The Levites were supposed to carry the ark of God. But one of the things that what we were to glean from that, and what you can glean from the word, is one of the things you're not supposed to do is you're not supposed to touch the ark and definitely not remove the the mercy seat and look inside of it now the levites who knew the worship of god knew the service of god should have known the word of god they were the ones leading the worship service and they probably that hey we're curious about what's inside let's look inside let's examine what we have here and when they took the 
uh, the cover off of the ark of God. The Bible says in 1 Samuel 6, 19-21, He, the Lord, struck the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,070 men of the people. There's another translation that says 70 of the 50,000 were struck. And the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall it go up from us? And so they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirajirim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. So the ark of God, as we said before, had been fashioned at the command of God and had been given uh, with it specific instructions to the people on how the ark was to be handled and transported. So what's interesting to me is that when they violated the word of God and the uh, uh, practice that God had initiated and looked into the ark of God and people perished because of it, then what they wanted to do is instead of figuring out what we did wrong, uh, why did this happen, and where are you going to find that out? You're going to find that out in the Word of God. Instead of figuring it out, instead of finding out why this happened, and being willing to change to accommodate God's presence in their lives, they decided to forego the presence of God and send God's presence away. It's too hard to serve God. He requires too much. I got to learn his ways. I got, you know, it's interesting to me because if you get hired at the plants, if you get hired at Dow, or you get hired at BASF, you got to learn their ways. You don't say, it's too hard, it's too difficult, I don't want to do this, right? Uh, uh, this is not what I signed up for. Now, you can say that and go and get another job but most people what they do is they buckle down and they figure out what do I have to do to be able to do this job and do it right right because this is a good job and I want to keep this job so they learn the requirements they learn and you know what happens over a process of time you get it Nobody expects them, uh, when you hire on, to get it right away. They put you through training. through you know uh, They put you through uh, uh, orientation. They teach you the man. They teach you the principles. And maybe after a couple of years, you know, they, they, you can leave you by yourself. You can, whatever the case may be. Well, you know, being a Christian is kind of like that. You've got to go through discipleship training. You've got to go. you got to learn. You've got to grow. You learn what the manual says. You learn what the principles are. You learn, but you know, oh, man, I don't want to do that. It's too hard, you know. I'm not, I'd rather send the ark somewhere else. And that's what these people did. They decided to forego the presence of God to send the ark away because it required too much from them. Right? It required too much from so they sent for the house of uh, Kirith-Jerim, the tribe of Kirith-Jerim. They sent to that tribe, and they sent the ark of God to the household of Abinadab. Now, here's what's interesting to me. I didn't do a lot on this, but the, but the ark of God came to a city, and that city was unwilling to keep the presence of God. And so they sent to another tribe, and they found a person who was willing to host the presence of God. Now, you know, to me, I believe God wants to move through everyone. But not everyone is willing to do what's necessary to host the presence of God. And so what often happens is, since he can't move through everyone, he finds one. 
Is that God's ultimate desire? Is that what really God wants? No, He wants to work through all of us. But if only one of them is willing, and I'll get into that here in a minute, then He'll work through the one. So he sent to the men of Kiriath-Jerim, and this brings us to my second point, the household of Abinadab. And it says in 1 Samuel 7, 1 through 2, the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. And so it was that the ark remained in Kiriath-Jerim a long time, and it was there 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So the city of Beth Shemesh sent for the men of Kirith-Jerim to come and take the ark. Kirith-Jerim means the city of the woods. But the word translated as woods is also translated in the Bible as honeycomb. Why is woods and honeycomb same word? Because where do you find honeycomb? In the woods, right? So Psalms 119 and 103 says this, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Ezekiel 3 and 3, God says, Eat this scroll. He said to me, Son of man, feed your belly, fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. And so I ate, and the scroll represented the word of God. And so I ate, and it was in my mouth like honey in sweetness. Right? In this city, there was a man by the name of Abinadab. His name means willing. So this house of Abinadab, located in the city of the honeycomb, the city of the word, was willing to receive the ark of God's presence. What this signifies to me is that Abinadab was willing to accommodate his life, his house, to the word of God, that the ark of God, which represented the presence of God, might be with I want God's presence more than anything. And it means that I'm going to have to die to some things. Ever since I got saved, I've been dying. But where there's death, there's life. Right? I have to die to my old ways. I have to die to my fears. I have to die to my bitterness, my unforgiveness, my anger have to die to the things Rick wants but whenever I lay those at his feet he resurrects other things in, his, in my life that are great much greater than anything that I could have done on my own what did John the Baptist say he must increase I must decrease and maybe it's not really maybe it should be this way maybe it should be uh, he must increase and self must decrease my ego my wants my desires my selfishness I gotta lay those at the altar because what I want more than anything is I want his presence right so he found a man who was willing sorry I feel the presence of the Lord willing to accommodate his life to change his lifestyle to match his instructions, to match what he wanted. This is what I want. And I want you to know it's not easy to do. If you go back and, and, and uh, read a guy by the name of Jacob, Jacob's whole life was spent wrestling, trying to get what he wanted. Yeah, he wanted the things for the Lord, but he, he was trying to get what he wanted. And really, his life changed. He got a name change 
whenever he got into an all-night wrestling match with God. Now, how do you know if God wants to? He can go, and he can knock you from this world all the way to the other side of the universe without even blinking an eye. So just think about how awesome God is that he's willing to get into a wrestling match with Jacob and willing to get into a wrestling match with us. Right? You ever, you ever some of you fathers, you ever get into a wrestling match with your kids, sons, and even when they're younger, your daughters, you know, and, oh, man, I got you, and you just pretend, oh, you got me, you got you know, whatever the case may be. But you know, they may not know, but you know you have to control yourself. You have to restrain yourself. But you enjoy the process. You enjoy uh, uh, um, the interaction, even though for them, they might be really trying to win. You're just enjoying it. God, God, I, I, God is, is not a problem for him to win. It's the process. It's the interaction. It's what's going on. And Jacob is wrestling with God all night long. Why? He wants a certain outcome. He wants something to happen. I'm not letting you go till you bless me. And then all of a sudden, what happened? It was about to come dawn, and the angel of the Lord touched the, the, the I think it says, the hollow of his thigh. Now, I want you to know that from what I understand, that's very painful. But it was only when, when God touched the hollow of his thigh that Jacob's situation changed. But he didn't let go. And here's the thing about Jacob. See, a lot of times when things get painful, we want to let go. Nope. I'm not going back to church anymore. I'm not. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. I tried that. And, you know, I thought it was supposed to be good. Everything was supposed to be better. Things are getting worse. It's getting painful in my life. Right? And so Jacob, however, did not let go. But instead of pushing because he, he, his, his strength was in his legs. It's in your hips and your legs. Instead of being able to push, now all he could do was hang on. I can't push against you anymore, but I'm not letting you go. I'm not letting you go till you bless me. And God turns to him and he said, what's your name? And I mentioned at that time, Jacob bowed his head because he'd been wrestling all night. Because to him, his name meant something. And he said, my name is Jacob. What? My name is Jacob. What does Jacob mean? It doesn't mean anything uh, to you, but it meant something to him. He said, I'm a heel grabber. Trying to get my way, trying to get ahead, making sure I come out first. My name is heel grabber. And God said, your name is no longer Jacob. Your name is Israel. What does Israel mean? One who has wrestled with God and overcome. But how did he overcome? Not by his strength, but in his weakness. Not by pushing against God, but by holding on. You can't control God. You'll never be able to control God. He will not let himself be controlled. He is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he knows it. It's not that he doesn't know it. We don't know it because we're used to being king of kings in our life. We're used to being our own king. We're used to being our own Lord. We're used to being our own master. And so we don't mind having God in our life as long as we can remain in control, but it doesn't work that way. What will end up happening if you want to keep living life that way is you're going to tell the presence of God to move on. So what is the Lord looking for? Looking for someone who's willing. 
what, where is he located? Where is this man located? In the city of the honeycomb, the city of the word. Too many people today don't reverence this word anymore. They don't reverence the word of God, right? I, I, I understand people that say, I know it's the word of God, but I don't, I understand that a lot better. I, I know it's the word of God, but I'm not living right. I'm not going to live right. That's your choice. At least you're reverencing the word of God. At least you recognize the standards. But there's so many people today, so many of the new generation, and to be honest with you, some of the old generation as well, who said, well, I, I, don't, I don't accept that as being my truth. I don't, I don't think I'll either ignore what the Word of God says or I'll refuse what the Word of God says or I'll deny what the Word of God says. But anything that I need to do so that I can continue to live the life that I want to live and have God in it. But I'm here to tell you that you're not going to have God in your life. If you don't have the Word of God in your heart, you're not going to have God's presence in your life. This Word must be reverenced. Thy word is light. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Let God be true and every man a liar. What this again signifies to me is that Benadab, whose name means willing, was willing to accommodate his life and his house to the word of God that the ark of God which represented the presence of God might be with him. Verse 1 of of the next chapter it says the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep to, the, to keep to keep the ark of the Lord do you see the contrast the city of Beth Shemesh was unwilling to change themselves to adjust themselves to the word of God to host the presence of God Abinadab was willing to adjust his life to the word of God that the presence of God would remain in his life and in his house. Hebrews 4 and 12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirits and joints and marrows, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. In other words, who were unwilling to restrain yourself to my word. James 1 and 22 through 25. But be doers of the word and not hearers only. By the way, he's talking to the church. James is talking to the church. Jesus was talking to the people of God. James is talking to the church. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Why would he have to say that? Because there's a lot of hearers only and not doers. Pastor, did you? Did God talk to you about me? Maybe. I ain't telling. But be doers of the word and not hearers only. Deceiving, not God, not the people around you. Who are you deceiving? Yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes, observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, the word of God, and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, a doer of the word, this one will be blessed in what he does. 
John 8, 31 through 34, Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, not to the ones that didn't believe him, but the ones who did believe him, if you abide in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. This reminds me of John. Word of God is awesome, right? This reminds me of John chapter 15. I don't have that in the there but in John chapter 15 Jesus talked about he is the vine and we are the branches it says I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away and every branch in me that bears fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit you are already clean that word clean there is actually the same word pruned you are already pruned because of the word which I have spoken to you so what is he saying he said the way that I prune my branches, and we are the branches, the way that I prune my people is through my word. But if you don't reverence the word, if you don't look at the word of God as being the word of God, and if you don't give it the, the, the prominence and the credence it deserves in your life, even though you read it, you won't be clean because you've got to let it do its work for you to be clean. He said to those Jews, "You shall abide in my word. You, you, if you abide in my word, you're disciples, and you're my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free." So finally, Matthew 7, 21 through twenty-three. Not everyone who says to me, "I already read, wrote that down," didn't I? I did. What I wanted that then after that is I, I was going to get twenty-four through twenty. Uh, I think it's twenty-four through twenty-five or twenty-four through twenty-six, which says, um, "You go ahead and turn there, Matthew seven. Matthew seven." In case you don't realize, i got all these scriptures in my notes, but I bring my Bible up here because sometimes I do go down a uh, rabbit trail. So in Matthew chapter 7, it says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, verse 24, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. What's the principle here? hears the word of God and does it. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew, beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Now, I heard this, and I thought, you think God intended this when he said that? He's God. You know what sand is? rocks that have been beat down into little bitty pieces. So you know what a lot of people want to do? They want to take individual pieces of the rock and apply it to their lives as they wish. But the reality is when you do that, you're building your house on sand. The only way to truly have stability as a Christian is to build your house on the entirety of God's Word build your house on the rock. Did you know that Jesus is the Word made flesh? You've got, to, you've got to embrace the Word of God in your life. It is, whether you do or not, but for it to have an, 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 uh, the effect that God wants it to have in your life and the effect that you would like it to have in your life, you've got to embrace it as being what it is, which is truth. Let God be true and every man a 
life. Your words are forever settled in the heavens whether we agree with them or not. So two things I want you to notice about this passage that we read about uh, Abinadab and, and the consecrating his son Eliezer. First of all, they set the ark on a hill. They sent the, pres the, the presence of God. They set the ark, the presence of God, on a high place. Now, when that spoke to me, I, I read about that. I said, how often do we fail to humble ourselves by setting God and his word above anything that we want or can do? You know that when you walk into a throne room, the king is always above you? He's seated on a throne, and he's always above you, and you walk in, and you're below the king. So when you put the word of God, you put the presence of God on a hill, what you're saying is, you're God, I'm not. 1 Peter 5 and 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Colossians 3 1 uh, through 10. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are below of the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. See, that's why some of y'all are hearing this. You may say, that's too hard. I'm going to send the presence of God somewhere else. Uh-uh. If that's in me, Lord, if it's in me, take it out. I want you more than anything. But now you must put them all away. And you have a responsibility in this. Anger, wrath, malice, slander. And some of y'all are going to uh, bow your heads at this. Obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So they set it on the hill. Second thing I want you to notice is that Benadab set up his son Eliezer to keep the ark. Now, when he's talking about keeping the ark, it doesn't mean that I possess the ark. That word keep is, actually means to watch. It's the same word when uh, God assigned Adam to keep watch over the garden. He was supposed to protect it. He was supposed to be a watchman. He was to guard and protect the garden, and Eliezer was to keep or watch or protect the ark. Eliezer means whom God helps. So put, to put this all together, what it should mean to us that it's the ones who are humble and willing to serve God by guarding, reverencing, and watching over the presence of God and the Word of God, those are the ones whom God helps. I would imagine that Abinadab's household was blessed. Even though it doesn't say it here, there was another man who kept watch over the ark of God a few years later before David finally went to God it. And the Bible does say about him in 2 Samuel 6 and 11, And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Why well, don't I want the presence of God? One is I love God. But I'll be honest, and I don't think I'm being selfish. I want the blessings of God on my life. I want the blessings of God on my family. 
we, we pronounce a blessing here at the end of the service. May the Lord bless you, keep you. Okay, this doesn't mean you're dismissed. I'm just... Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. He's, I want to be in the blessings of God. I want to receive the blessings of God in my life. So what do I have to do to do that? I've got to let Him be God. I've got to reverence His Word. And I've got to change whenever His Word says change because I want God more than anything else in my life. What I want us to glean from today, if we were to uh, conclude, and we are concluding, um, is that the presence of God is forever linked with the Word of God. In fact, Jesus is the Word of God made flesh. And I'll just go ahead and quote that. Uh, and the Word became flesh, John 1 and 14, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. To host the presence of God, which is what we want, I think, I think all of us would say, I want God in my life. Where we struggle is what it costs. Right? What are you going to do when God begins to move in your life? And people want prayer, and people want uh, to be in the presence of God, and people want to do these things. Are you going to say, no, I don't want that because I'm watching my favorite series on Netflix tonight. Oh, man, I sure hope church ends by 12.15 because, uh, you know, the Cowboys are going to be on at 12.30, and I don't want to miss that. You know, they're America's team. They're God's team. And that's a small price to pay. But I want to tell you something. For some of you, that's a big price to pay. What about other things that he begins to ask for? Other things that he begins to, and anything that God asks for, he already knows it's there, right? You know when he came to uh, Cain and Abel, he said, where is your brother? You think he didn't know? He knew. Your blood cries out to me from the ground. Knew exactly what happened. So anytime he calls to you and he's asking you for something, he's giving you opportunity to be open and to give it to him so he can redeem whatever situation that you're in. To host the presence of God, which is what we want, we must be willing to humble ourselves to submit to Him and to serve Him. We truly do so by reverencing His Word and by accommodating ourselves to His Word and in so doing are able to more fully realize the blessings of God's presence in our midst. I, I, last scripture I have here is in Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent. And that means, you change your ways. What do I change my ways to? The king and the kingdom. If you want to experience the blessings of God, which is the kingdom is at hand, repent. Because the king and his kingdom is at hand. Change your behavior. Change your thinking. Change your ways. Because the king and the kingdom is at hand. Jesus is the king. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And I gladly and willingly give my life to him because he gladly and willingly gave his life for me. I love him. I want him in my life. And he's coming. He's coming to our lives individually. He's coming again for us 
as a church, as a bride, right? But he's coming in his glory. He's going to show himself strong in this praise. The presence of God, the ark of God, is going to move in. You're going to see the Shekinah glory. You're going to see the presence of God in your life. And I'm telling you beforehand, it's going to cost you something. And we're going to have a choice. We're going to have to choose. Do I want God more than the price that I'm willing to pay? Or the price that it's, it's going to cost me? Am I willing to pay the price? Or am I going to ask, say, God, I love this, but maybe you get some other church to host it. And I'll just go visit when I have a little time because the price is too high. The cost is too high. The requirements are too high. And I want you to know, I, as for me and my house, whatever it costs, I'm going. I, I like to rest too. I, I like to, uh, you know, do things as well. But what I want more than anything is I want to see lives changed. I want to see the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, the dead raised. I want to see that. I want to see uh, uh, the presence of God be so thick that people have to make a decision for God or not. I want to see the glory of God manifest in such a way that people driving by here will pull in the parking lot and say, I don't know why, but I had to come in here, and then they get saved. I want to see the baptismal uh, uh, running every week because we have so many people that need to be baptized. I want to experience the pressures of figuring out how are we going to park the cars that are coming? How are we going to accommodate the crowds that are coming? What do we have to do with the worship team? We got it six, seven services a week. What in the world? You know, and it's like, I don't know if I can do that. I don't either, but I don't care. When God comes, I want God, whatever it requires, He'll help me figure it out. He'll help us figure it out. The question is, am I willing to give everything up for His presence? And I'm just telling you, I am, and I'm asking you, are you? Mm -hmm.